And habits are good. I mean, they're, they're sort of a way to harness our days and, and make them more efficient, but sometimes we can sort of get buried underneath our habits and, and, and forget to feel joy or to pay attention or to feel gratefulness. Welcome to Deviate with Rolf Potts. Today's episode is a remix of the Zoom conversation I had with the Nomadic Network Online Book Club about a month ago. We cover many themes in this discussion, but we come back again and again to the idea of giving yourself permission to live out your travel dreams, no matter how old you are. We talk about how travel can be in constant conversation with the lives we lead at home, even before we leave on our dream trip. We talk about embracing the miracle of the present moment and not postponing our best lives to some future time. And among many other things, we talk about ways to stay open to serendipity and surprise and embrace wonder and gratitude at home as well as on the road. Now, because this was a Zoom conversation that included more than 40 participants, it's a bit more open-ended and thematically varied than your typical Deviate episode. Erica Hackman of the Nomadic Network moderated the conversation, kind of like Nomadic Matt did back when we discussed my book Marco Polo Didn't Go There back in episode 174 of this podcast. It was recorded in early February, and we discussed the January section of my book, The Vagabond's Way. Just so you know, this ongoing virtual book club will take place the first Wednesday of each month as 2023 plays out, and you're welcome to join us on Zoom. For details, check out the links in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. One of the charms of online travel book clubs is how global they are. I was at home in Kansas, but Erica was calling from Ghana, and some people joined the conversation from various parts of Asia and Europe and Latin America as well. I've given it some edits for clarity and smoothness, but do be aware that it has some of the audio idiosyncrasies that happen when you host a 40-person Zoom call. To avoid repeating some of the themes I've already shared about my book on this podcast, I start our book club chat about 15 minutes into the actual Zoom conversation. The discussion picks up just after a participant shared how she'd heard about me on the Tim Ferriss podcast a few months ago, and how living a deliberate and examined life is important when the people in your home community don't always share your travel values. Let's listen in. I think sometimes when we surround ourselves or when we are surrounded by people who don't have the same passions and interests as are as we are, then sometimes you can feel a little isolated when you're thinking about, well, how do we spend our time? Like, gosh, did I just spend like two hours sort of scrolling social media and watching TV? Maybe this day could be a little bit better. And so I think this is how travel is tied into the lives we live at home. When you when you are overseas, when you go all the way to the other side of the world, to Ghana or Cambodia or something, you don't want to sit on your phone. You don't want to live your life like this. That's that's how you sort of escape from your life at home. And so if you can bring that excitement of travel back home, or if you can cultivate that excitement before you've left for other places, then that is a gift that you're giving yourself in advance that basically attention is a word that came up a lot in that Tim Ferriss interview and a lot of my podcasts about the vagabond's way is that travel forces us to pay attention. But if we can bring that attention home or cultivate that attention before we leave, then it's not just a consumer experience of travel, nothing wrong with the consumer experience of, of doing cool things, but then suddenly we're living in a more engaged way and travel can be sort of a way to slingshot us into a more exciting way of living at home. And I know that Tony talked about living in a rural area. I live in rural Kansas. And sometimes it's fun to just to just go for a walk, to like walk for an hour or two, even though it's not exotic here. Um, it's just a, it's a great way to force myself into attention. It's like, oh my God, an owl lives there. There's an owl in that tree. I would have missed that owl had I not gone for a walk right now. Uh, so I don't want to go on too much about this 
this. But yeah, I, I love that idea of, of paying attention and thinking about how you spend your time because travel is in conversation with the life we live at home, both before we leave on the trip and when we come home. And that's sort of the part of the point of the book. That's a good segue into the January 3rd post. That's really talking about living life each day, very intentionally doing something that makes you feel like life is a miracle. Um, For those that don't have the book right in front of you, he talks about this artist um, that does all of these really mundane things, but on a daily basis. So like, even though they're mundane, like, you know, writing a postcard or leaving a voicemail, it becomes this like miraculous, you know, passage through time, if you will. So I was wondering, like, how how do you, Rolf, or somebody that you that you've encountered that's not necessarily this artist, um, counteract the idea that time is passing, and how can you like bring yourself into the miracle of the moment, um, like? this artist has either on the road. I know you just gave an example of like taking a walk back at home, but like what else is something that you've done to make you feel like you're in that moment? Well, I think a lot of it is having perspective on your habits. I think habits is another thing that comes up in January and habits are good. I mean, they're, they're sort of a way to harness our days and and make them more efficient, but sometimes we can sort of get buried underneath our habits and, and, and forget to feel joy or to pay attention or to feel gratefulness. Uh, and so on Karawa, the, the Japanese artist I, I wrote about, I, I discovered him by accident in a museum in New York. And he had this one postcard where he would send postcards to his friends and say, all they would say is, I am still alive. And it's like, cool. So I like, it was sort of the idea of there is, uh, the Greeks said that there's Kairos and Kronos. Kronos is like, it's event time or not. It is just chronological time, but uh, chrono, uh, Kairos is event time. It is the, um, it is the lived aspect. It's the event time of our life. And so I think we can't avoid sort of the quotidian ticking of the clock, but I think if we can remind ourselves to pay attention and again, going for a walk, um, telling, telling someone in your life, you love them, or, or even dreaming of a trip on the other side of the world, even if you can't go for two more years, even if your, your money is just being saved in $10 increments and you can't go yet, then you can pay You can get excited about uh, an event that is happening in the future. Um, you know, not in a way that you're not paying attention to your life right now, but you're putting that in conversation. So I don't want to be too abstract about my answer there, Erica. But I think it's it's about realizing that our we can't avoid the TikTok of time, but it's sort of a way either at home or on the other side of the world of of just finding ways to feel joy and gratitude and excitement about the possibilities that life has for us. You just actually reminded me of something that uh, one of our team members, Maria, does where she records a second a day and she's done this for like four years now. And the ability to just look back and see like what a miracle her life is, even if it's just the sunset, like everyone can see the sunset no matter where you live and like cataloging that in a way that feels like, wow, I can't believe this gets to be my life because it's just one second of all the seconds in your day that has to be something that you want to capture. And the the habit or the process of doing that is what makes it so incredible and gives you many minutes of, you know, your last few years of miracles. I'll hop in on something there, Erica. Later in the book, I'm giving away, it's a chapter later in the book, but when the first time I went to Key West, I went to Mallory Square on the end of the island and the people there gather and they clap for the sunset every day. 
And it blew my mind. It's like, oh my God, you can clap for the sunset. And so I was a young man. I was 23 when I was having this trip. And I realized that, you know, they do the same thing at Ia in, in Greece and, and other parts of the world. They do it in, in Rio as well. Uh, but I realized that giving yourself permission to be excited and feel gratitude just at the end of the day, the, the, the sky is being colored. And so that's another metaphor that I've brought back with me. Actually, when I was 23, I tried to clap for the sunset every day, but then it just got to be too, too, too hard to keep up with. And I felt too weird clapping for sunsets in places where it's not a social ritual. But that is a metaphor for just that gratitude that every day there's something, sometimes it's a small thing that you can feel gratitude for and just and just sort of say a little prayer. Thank you for being alive. You know, that it's just, that's a good thing to be reminded of because I think life can be hard sometimes. The pandemic is a reminder of bad things can happen. Everybody's newsfeed is a reminder that bad things are happening all the time. It, it sort of puts us into this anxious clickbait world of uh, constant scrolling. But each day is so full of big and small things to be grateful for, including sunsets. So yeah, I just wanted to jump in and say that there's another chapter that addresses that. I love that. And it even reminds me of like in some parts of the world, and I will definitely not say I've experienced this, if at all, in America. But when you land a plane, people clap. And mm. at first I thought that was so strange. Like, is it so rare that planes land here that right. we're clapping for this? But then I was thinking like, you know, after that happened a few times, I was thinking maybe it's the miracle that we just traverse this many miles in like a few hours that people are like standing ovation for this one look at what we just did as humans like what yeah. an impossible task we just finished so yeah clapping is a clapping is a funny one it's just it's the easiest way to celebrate something a smile or a clap and so just being intentional about that i love that and stephanie said that she clapped at in yeah, at her first uh, sunset. So that's really beautiful. I would love for Denise, I saw that you had a comment. Would you like to, you know, share it with everyone? Uh, when, one of the, uh, the the days that really struck me was that whole concept of, um, you know, we were so focused a lot of times on where are we going to go and what's the plan and, you know, and I like that, um, I think it was called going someplace is, you know, less important than just going. And the whole idea of just start the journey, you know, many people don't. Yeah, in that in that particular chapter, I, I, I bring up Tony Parate, who was just on my podcast this week. Uh, he, he's an expert on the ancient Roman tourists who sort of had some of the same idiosyncrasies as we did. But their tourist circuit was much more prescribed than ours. And so they would just go, you know, follow in the footsteps of, of myths or they would go to the pyramids or whatever. And so I think... The, the the motivations that have got gotten us out of the door have always been collective, but the discoveries on the road are individual, and they often had no, have nothing to do with those bucket lists that it got us out of the door in the first place. And so that's fun. Um, in fact, on the, on the episode art this week, I put a picture of Luke Skywalker and Star Wars because people will go to Tunisia because that was where Star Wars was filmed. They'll go to Dubrovnik because that's where Game of Thrones was filmed, or to New Zealand because of Lord of the Rings. But at the end of the day. It's cool to see those movie places if you're into those movies, but the cool, like what happens on the bus uh, on the way to Dubrovnik or what happens at the hotel or walking, getting lost and walking down an alley and smelling a food you never smelled before and, and figuring out a way to order it and having the most amazing meal of your life. It's those surprises that that's why I, I titled that chapter. Uh, it's more important just to go than to have a reason to go because the discoveries are so amazing. You don't even know what they are yet. And that's that's a good thing. That's a gift of travel. Sherry, would you like to also share your comment I just saw? 
uh, I love the concept of uh, January 5th and January 9th about trying on new versions of yourself as you travel, um, particularly since we've set out after a lifetime of raising kids and empty nest. And here we are. Um, and I think after almost two years of being on the road in the United States, um, you really helped me find the why of what we're doing this when it's not about the destination per se, it's about the journey and all of the discoveries of not having necessarily a, a plan, you know, which is hard for some of us. Um, so thank you. Thank you for for turning up today, and I, I I can see David Hunter Bishop here. And um, hey, David, uh, I, I I'm curious to know where in the world he is, but I, he's done that. He he's been traveling. He's like had a digital nomad retirement, and he I think he really has allowed himself to surprise himself. And I know this because he came to my Paris class last year. And I know Linda is here too. Linda is also in her seventies. Um, I don't know how 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 old you are, but um. But yeah, I, I think David and Linda can both attest to being sort of surprised. I know that they saw this in Paris recently. It's not age specific, but I know one of my chapters in, in January is about the best time, the best age to travel is whatever age you are now. I think travel has been seen as a young people thing and that's for good reason. But it's so exciting, the idea that you can try on new versions of yourself at whatever age you are. And for me, that was really important when I was 23. But I, I'm fairly recently married, and so I got to travel with my wife last summer to Paris and Norway. You know, uh, uh, Linda and David have met my wife in person. Erica has too, and so it's it's really fun that that is something that can keep happening. You don't have to find this version of yourself and then just relax and be that person. You can continue to challenge yourself. And that's a really fun, fun aspect of that. And so much of what I've written about since the days of Vagabond and again in the new book is giving yourself permission. And so I think it's giving yourself permission at whatever age you are, whatever experience you have to find new things and to be vulnerable and to be surprised by your travels and by life and to be joyful for those sort of things. So it's, it's, it's been fun to th fun to see. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. I also think that ties in pretty well with just celebrating the things that people don't typically celebrate. I know that you harped a lot on like the, uh, practicalities of how to make yourself um, more time in your calendar to travel in vagabonding. And you touched on it, uh, like she's saying on, uh, sorry, like Sherry said on January 5th about how you can just like have a life transition and have that be like almost like celebrated by a trip instead of like feeling like, oh, my kids are gone and now I have an empty nest. It's like, oh, my kids are gone. Now I can leave. <laughs> now I can go somewhere. <laughs> now I can like go live a whole different life that doesn't have to do with like other people's schedules and dinners together. Like, what do I want my life to look like? And I feel like I, I have um, met a lot of people that were in those life transitions and I've been that person where I'm like, okay, I quit my job. Let me go like do something for a few months. That's way more fun than sitting and searching for jobs, you know, or let me, this relationship is over. Let me like gift myself a trip so that I'm not just sitting here like sulking, but I'm doing growing in some way. But I was wondering, Rolf, if you could just share a, a, a tip or two to people that may say, okay, it's great to travel. I love traveling. We're in this January chapter, but like, how do I actually have more than 
two weeks or how can I make more than two weeks to travel in life? This is this is something that, I, that goes all the way back to, uh, to vagabonding. It's something I touch on in the February chapter of The Vagabond's Way. But it's sort of about quietly creating space in your life for travel to happen. I think often in this consumer mindset we have in the United States, it's about getting enough money to throw at a life situation, be it real estate or relationships or whatever, when in fact, really, and this is why time wealth was so such an important epiphany for me when I was young, is that it doesn't cost that much to enable certain kinds of dreams. And I think if you, and of course, Nomadic Matt and and the Nomadic uh, community knows this, if you find places to travel that are not places where you throw money at the situation, but you're traveling in the local economy, be it in Ghana or Tbilisi, Georgia or whatever, you're actually paying into the local economy, you're being a part of that economy, you're being a part of that country's community for a while and you're saving a ton of money. So oftentimes I think when we talk ourselves out of travel at the front end, we're just looking at that sort of high price tag that comes with the air conditioned hotel and the people who are staying there for three days as opposed to three years, nothing against that kind of travel, but don't let that limit your ideas of how you can travel. And then oftentimes we don't have time off from work. And so this is why I say sometimes maybe your your dream journey is going to happen in two years. Find ways to negotiate a sabbatical. Find ways to become location independent, which is easier than ever. My wife, as you know, Erica, as an actress, now she does her auditions from this little double white in Kansas. Like she's on stage in DC. She's, she's on NBC TV shows and she auditions right here. That Metaphorically, so many people can talk to their bosses and become more location independent in a way that they can dovetail travel with life. And then, as I say in Vagabond, sometimes quitting is, is too. If, if, uh, if, you're, if you don't love your job or if you sort of feel like you can become more nimble, um, maybe be, as you move from one job to another, negotiate, find a way to take off a couple months or a couple of years and travel, that can happen too. I don't think there's a silver bullet um, and everybody comes from a different situation, but I think just quiet optimism and sort of knowing your options, if not your destiny, is a good way to approach this situation. I have met so many people that have said, oh, I'm too scared to travel to a place that doesn't speak English or that's too far away or um, with no, the, like, I don't know anyone that's been there or to move abroad seems like an insurmountable task to me. Like, how do you do it? And I feel like this page specifically just made me reflect on all the people that like have to move from their country to a place that doesn't speak their language, doesn't have their customs and how that is also traveling and how we don't really like consider that traveling. But it's like a huge sector of the people traveling are people that are like completely changing their lives. So I'm not sure where the question is in that ramble, but Ralph, would you like to speak? Well, I I can jump in because I think it's easy to to forget (laughs) that the tourist level of travel, and we're all tourists, even if we like to think that we're we're travelers and tourists both, but it's easy to forget that that's the only people who are traveling. I think you go to a place like Ghana, people are going to be taking vacations to the next town over. They're going to be seeing family. Um, uh, I've met the, the coolest Africans in the world in, in Damascus, Syria. I heard some gospel music and I went to a church and these people were refugees, but that doesn't mean they're not travelers. It doesn't mean they're not amazing and speak more languages than me. And so I think that conversation is really fun. And then you read like uh, uh, the Japanese noblewoman Sei Sonoga and had this great book, The Pillow Book, this really weird book about her own travels. But she traveled with servants who were probably not literate, but just like those servants, I bet had amazing experiences, you know? And so I think 
oftentimes we think, oh, well, you sort of have to be the rich, important person, or you have to, you know, be as as white as all of the other partiers on this beach in Thailand to be there. And it's like, no, actually, anybody can go just because just because these people didn't get a chance to tell their story doesn't mean they weren't there. And so I think one thing I try to do throughout the book is to point to the fact that travel is this common human experience that we all have. Some of us travel as digital nomads. Some of us travel as actual nomads. You can go to Mongolia or, or Kyrgyzstan and meet actual nomads who are following their herds around. But we're all sharing in this human experience of travel. And I think sometimes, um, yeah, we don't give ourselves permission because we have these limiting points. Like I, my parents didn't have passports when I was a kid. And I lived in this in this state that was really far from other borders. And so somehow that was my limitation when, when in fact people with much less resources have found ways to give themselves permission to travel. And so I think there's a lot of excuses. Even on social media, it's sort of a reverse thing. It's like, oh, well, I'm not sure if I can travel because I am... Um, you know, I'm a gay man and I'm not sure what it's like in Egypt. And it's like, well, why, why, why should that be? Let's talk about that. Because I think sometimes we're looking for excuses not to travel than for reasons to travel. And I think people of all identities and backgrounds have found, found ways to travel, whether or not we see them on the cover of the magazine or at the top of our Instagram feed every day that is happening. And that's something that'll be a part of this entire year's conversation is just that we're all fellow travelers and we should look for opportunities rather than limitations. And when we find limitations, that should be a part of the conversation too, because I think we can encourage each other as people who've gone out there and um, and enjoyed the pleasures of the world. I would love to open this up to other people, by the way. So I'm going to ask my last question. But if you guys have questions or if you want to share something, you can either raise your hand or just say, pick me and I'll <laughs> let you unmute yourself in the chat. Um, but I really was moved by this January 15th, uh, travel as a way to gain perspective on what success is. Do you want to expand on that and also maybe reflect on how your definition of success has changed over the years? Yeah, I, I think we're all born, at least as Americans, I know we're not all Americans here, but like money is the metric for success. Oh, look, look at this guy. I use an example. I forget if it's in that chapter or not. Or like John Muir, we think of John Muir as this guy with a white beard who wandered through California and was was in, in tune with nature. That dude made a lot of money uh, exporting wine to Hawaii when he was in his 20s, I think. And then he decided to do what he loved, which is go for walks and travel and things like that. And people asked him, well, aren't you jealous of HM? Harriman, he, he has all this money from the railroads. And John Muir is like, no, I'm richer than him because I have all the money I need and he doesn't. And so it's this idea that we keep filling this overfull cup of material wealth that we can't even use. You know, like I, I think like the if you make $25,000, you're in the top 1% of the world, right? Like in, in an industrialized country, it doesn't take that money. So many people in the world are so much poorer than us. So if we use if we use money as the metric for what success is, then we're just comparing ourselves to the, the other knuckleheads who are using money as a metric for success. So oftentimes, and I'm sure Erica, this has happened to you, a lot of people, like I've, I've traveled around the world. When I was in Asia, I kept, I was like 27 and people would say, oh, uh, where's your wife? Oh, I'm not married. Oh, I'm so sorry. Like they saw wealth as family. They saw wealth as relationships. And now that I, I'm married, it's like, yeah, I wish I would have been had Kiki around when I was 27. She probably would have been too young for me back then. But but just the idea that people see they they have their metric for wealth is different and and often very healthy. Why shouldn't family or loved ones or the ability to to garden or or again, to travel or to um 
give back to our community. Why shouldn't those be aspects of wealth? And so, um, yeah, I, I really like the idea of pushing back against this material metric for success because it's it's so hollow. And so I think uh, if you can find enough material wealth to fund the life that makes you happy, if you can find, that's what success is, you know, is finding ways to spend an extra hour with your kids or your parents, um, or to go for that walk and, and, um, sit in that field until you can see that Fox that, you know, that lives in that field shows up, you know, um, there's just so many ways that wealth can manifest that don't cost any money at all. And so that's one of the things I I'm gently trying to encourage in, in, especially in the January chapter of the book. Uh, Diana, would you like to share? I see your comment here. Would you like to share your comment? I've made a couple. Are you referring to oh. the one about keeping up with the Joneses mentality about material success? Uh, I was talking about the best age to travel, but share whatever you'd like. Yeah. Whatever you'd <laughs> like. That's what, actually, it was in my early 30s. It was my mid-30s when I first started traveling and uh, just fell in love. And I just thought I have... I have to catch up. I've lost 15 years of my life when other people were traveling and I couldn't for myriad reasons, right? And when I did, it was just something so addictive to me. And uh, uh, I had to travel a lot for work. That's how it started. And I would always add time before or after a work trip and um, then burnt out from work. Uh, took a sabbatical and I've just been traveling now. And I think I'm going to take early retirement to continue traveling. And in fact, you talked about Mongolia, Rob. And uh, so I have it um, to go to the Gobi Desert uh, and sort of uh, do travel, do about a week, a week and a half there with some of the nomads. And I am so excited. I love it as, as you should be. Uh, and no, I, I love just the idea. I think I was born into a world that sort of presumed as part of why I wrote Vagabonding. It, it's sort of an upper middle-class presumption. It's like, oh, well, you graduate from college and then you travel, you get a backpack and travel for a world. And then you go and do your life. Like this conversation, this age specific travel conversation, um, I think it's outdated. You know, I, I write in other parts of, like nomads. If you, when you go to the Gobi and actually when you come home from the Gobi, the Gobi you'll, will be in your baggage and your shoes. That dust is very fine. Um, and it'll, it'll be a, your, your truest souvenir. But as you go there, the people who live nomadic lives, it's not just one dude who's 22. It's the whole family. You know, they travel together. They share the responsibilities of travel. And, um, no, I, I, I'm excited uh, and jealous that you're headed in that to that part of the world. And I like the idea of, yeah, why, why not give ourselves early retirement? Even if we're like 24, why not retire for a couple of years when you're 24 and travel? Why not retire for a couple of years when you're 47? Because I think if you, if we buy into too, too many societal ideas of when we have permission to work versus, versus not work, then suddenly we're not in control of our own lives. And I'm not saying be, be, be reckless, but it sounds like you're being very smart, uh, about, uh, your approach to things. Uh, and so this is a good thing. This is a good part of the conversation to have. And it's great why we have communities like this multi-age again, going back to, uh, to Linda and David, who are, who are still here, I think in Paris after the classes and everybody was, all the students were hanging out together. Some of them were 70 years old, some were 22 years old. Nobody saw age there because everybody was excited about being in Paris. It's like, really, you guys were up till three o'clock again? And, and that's a great thing about travel is that those constraints no longer apply. And so in, in, in their own way, everybody in my class last year, age 22 to age 70, 
They were on, they were retired for that week. They were giving themselves to give permission to stay out late, to have delicious food, to go for walks. And, and that, that was fun to see. And again, I, I'm jealous of, of your trip to the Gobi because that's going to be amazing. I would also say that when I was in my 20s traveling, like the people that inspired me the most were the people in the hostels that were older because I had this idea that this is the only time I can travel. And so every time I met somebody that was older, even if it was just 30, just 40, Uh you know, like and rising and rising, I was just like, oh my gosh, you don't just have to do this after college. Like this could be something that happens throughout my life. And it was so inspiring to me. And so kudos to everyone that's traveling of all ages, because everyone is looking at each other thinking like, and I remember a lot of them telling me, I wish I had traveled at your age. And so I was thinking, wow, like I'm doing the thing that this person that I admire wishes that they were doing at my age. And so it also put me in like a there's something to this life that that's more than I can see at from my lens. Um, yeah, I I also saw a comment from Jarek. Rolf, you've talked a lot about your 23 year old self and how, um, you know, how he had this wanderlust and how he's grown through life and created this this journey for himself. And so I'm almost 23. I turned 23 in a few months and and I'm working a full-time job straight out of the university from where I graduated. And I feel an immense pressure to, to reach my potential and to learn all these lessons and, um, and, and to, to find my passions now. And so I'm wondering, and to be reflective. And, and so I'm wondering if that 23 year old self of yours knew what he wanted to do exactly. I wasn't the like stereotypical devil may care 23 year old going off to like take a bunch of rum shots on, on the Caribbean sea. I was a very anxious 23 year old. You know, I, I had seen my grandfather retire and not really get rewarded with the time he had. I was afraid that if I didn't scratch my itch, my travel itch immediately, I would be unhappy. What I realized that was that travel was easier and cheaper and safer than I had ever imagined. And so my advice, this is not the first person I'm giving this to. I give it at colleges all the time. It's like, feel free to waste your 20s. At the end of the day, and I don't mean that, like just go hang out with your bong on a beach someplace. (laughs) By waste your 20s, I mean, get into adventures, be vulnerable, try new things. Because in a way that the university education, nothing against universities. My sister is a college professor. My dad was. But your education starts when you sort of use those tools and bring them to another part of the world. And suddenly one day you're 23 um, and you're sort of not sure about how your 20s are going to go. And then suddenly you're 28 and you speak a couple more languages and you know a lot about industrial engineering or whatever your your academic interest is because you've seen it on the ground in place. I'm going to say Ghana because that's where Erica is, but these other parts of the world and you've expanded things. And so I think there's a lot of pressure that's put on people in their late teens and early 20s in the United States, especially. There's this inculcated idea that if you if you do the wrong thing, you could ruin the rest of your life. When in fact, actually, if you do the right thing, like travel, you could enhance the rest of your life. Because um, basically what I did, to be specific to my own life, when I was 23, I got a van with a friend. We lived what's now called van life. We lived in a van 
Um, I sort of ran out of money. I went back. I, I got a job teaching English in Korea. That blew my mind. It's so funny to see like every third TV show on Netflix is made in Korea. I'm, I'm so excited <laughs> to see this country. I can, I can read Hangul. I, I know a little bit of Korean. Um, I learned so much just by going to Korea and I mostly worked there, but I learned so much about other cultures. I made some more money and then I started wandering around the world. And I, even when I became a travel writer, I wasn't a travel expert. I guess I was in a certain way, but I was a guy who was willing to make mistakes and be vulnerable. And I think it was those mistakes and being willing to learn from them and being really curious. Uh, that is what allowed me to air quotes, waste my twenties without literally wasting my twenties is that basically I enhanced my life by living a twenties through which I wasn't sure how it would end. I wasn't sure what would happen when I moved to Korea. I wasn't sure what would happen when I took the trans Mongolian train across Asia. I wasn't sure what would happen when I stuck my thumb out and started hitchhiking across Eastern Europe or just sort of wandered around Cairo for a while. But I think it's those vulnerable outside of the box experiences that you can give yourself. Basically, long story short, I'm excited for you, man, because you're at a great point in your life. And again, not to make this all about my Paris class, but we had some 20 somethings in that class. And I was just so jealous of them because I wish I could go back and do it again. I was full of anxiety when I was 23 and maybe when in my, in my mid 20s and other parts of my life. But looking back, it's just like, wow, that was really cool to not really know what was going to happen next. And I'm really excited about my life as it is now. But it was so fun to not... Um, to not know and have it turn out okay anyway. And I think all of us at different times in our life are worried about how things will turn out. But I think if we, again, if we pay attention, give ourselves permission to do what we love and and just sort of, I think Kierkegaard said, um, life is lived forward and understood backwards. So as, as you live forward in a way that you don't understand yet, then you can look backward and say, oh my God, these are the dots that connected to this place. And I'm so grateful that I am here. Um, yeah, so I'm excited for you, man. I'd sort of like to pose this question to the audience since age was, I mean, we have a wide range of ages on this call and I love it. And age was one of the topics of just like travel now. And since you're asking this question, Jarek, I would love to pose this to anyone on this call to share like something that they like that changed because they traveled at a younger age that their life is better for now, whether it's just like knowing how to cook better or open to meeting different people, or like maybe you got your job because of some experience or met a best friend or does anyone want to share something that has transformed because they traveled and, you know, wasted some time abroad, like, you know, not doing the typical thing. Oh, go ahead. We have Tony start. <laughs> go ahead. Okay, well, I guess um, define what young is, first of all. <laughs> but uh, I quit my job when I was 30, which at the time felt late. Like being in this rural, small town, um, it, it, it was unusual for me to not be married yet at 30. All of my friends were, they had kids. I was supposed to have my life figured out. And I had just ended a long-term relationship that I waited way too long to end. But, you know, fear of change. And... Uh, I decided I was going to go to Costa Rica for three months and go to a Spanish immersion school and fulfill a lifelong dream of mine to, to be fluent, basically, and live in a foreign country. I had not taken that opportunity to do in college and had thought, like, if, you know, is that the only opportunity to study abroad or wait till retirement, right? So I was like, no, I will, I'll figure this out. I put in my notice. I quit my nursing job. 
I had no backup plan. I just saved enough money to get me through that period of time. And then an additional one month and was like, I'll figure it out from there. <laughs> and I did. And it it honestly has changed my life. And that was really the, I think the moment that I credit to taking responsibility for creating my own life in the way that I wanted instead of passively kind of waiting for things to happen to me. And I, I'm with the man that I married now because of that. Like I grew into this person that I wanted to be. I'm around people who, um, shared like this, you know, similar passions and viewpoints in life. I started an entirely different career. Now I work for myself. I can work from anywhere. And it's something I'm incredibly passionate about. And yeah, the catalyst was taking that leap into the unknown and and traveling and knowing that I'd figure it out. Beautiful. David, did you unmute yourself to share? Um, not necessarily, no. I, I I did a lot of traveling when I was younger, but uh, none of it none of it clicked the way it should have. I just I just kept on with the with the corporate journalism jobs right up until I retired. The typical boomer arc the whole way through. This is part. Of, this is my book. You know, you know that. Once I got to retirement, I looked down that road and said, "No, not going to happen." And uh, and I so I took off at age sixty four. And I've uh, been traveling ever since. I'm 71 now. And there's no end in sight. I'd love to just have Alec share. And then, Ralph, you can say some closing words and tell us about what's coming for the next month. And then we can pop off. Okay? I, just wanted, you know, I just wanted to share that I've you know, definitely connected with, with everything that's mentioned in the first chapter, but also with the specific kind of crossroads um, I'm 38 now. I graduated, though, in 2008, 2009 into a terrible economy, which kind of forced our hands into doing something different, you know. And luckily enough, my girlfriend at the time said, who's my wife now, you know, said, why not? Let's hit the road. And so she quit her job. I couldn't find work. And we we spent three and a half months in Europe. And, it, you know, it changed our perspective on the American society you know, about consumerism and, you know, living more intentionally and about the work-life balance, you know, and we spent three and a half months over there. Then we came back to the U.S. and did four months road trip around the U.S. because we wanted to be tourists in our own country as well, you know, and that's where we got engaged was while we were traveling. And so we've kind of focused our entire life around travel. You know, we came home, got jobs, you know, started work life, you know, as a way it was, and then I saw my father similarly, you know, go into you know, poor health, kind of forced into retirement at 65, you know, had traveled a lot his whole life, but not, you know, waited to do some of the bigger trips with my mom to go on those things. And so that forced me to even think about the work-life balance even again. And so I quit my job with no backup plan and kind of figured it out on my own and now have my own business so that I have extreme flexibility because we live so intentionally. And I think, you know, the connection to that chapter 28 or January 28th with John Muir talking about, you know, he had all the money he needed. You know, I think money is, we're fortunate enough to believe that money is not our biggest constraint, really. It is the time and finding the time. And, you know, and I think we live our lives so intentionally. What I, what I love about that is that that your your travel impetus was like a financial crash. 
I think one privilege we have as first world uh, citizens is that even when the economy is down, we still can travel across an ocean, right? And so I think there's so many ways we can sort of head fake ourselves out of our travels um, when in fact, a, a, again, you know, people people in, in places like Ghana or other, other places, they find ways to travel, even if it's just local, you know, that we're, we're waiting for a, a, a hypothetical version of travel conditions that we can actually take uh, care of now. And I've met a lot of people who started traveling in 2008. Vagabonding, my first book was five years old there. And they're like, yeah, I, I didn't really want to do instead of, so instead of staying at home and, and, and suffering from anxiety, I decided to hit the road and, and zero of those people have come back and said, yeah, I ruined my chances at employability because I spent 2009 on the road. No, actually all those people really diversified their skill set. Um, and are grateful to having done that. And Alec, it's fun to hear your story too. So I think that that sort of ties together a lot that we were talking about, just the idea of permission and how when you shift ideas of what success is, what wealth is, when you when you uh, shift ideas of, of how you can find wealth and just sort of simplifying your life at home, then it makes travel a more possible thing. And again, what I loved about this conversation at any age, you know, once again, we had a big span of ages of people. And I think there are specific travel concerns at any age, but I think travel is, is available across the spectrum of age and it's all about permission. And so Erica, thanks. This was fun. Um, and I look forward to doing it again in a month. If you have one more minute, do you want to tell us what this Paris workshop is so that the people that have heard a few mentions of it can actually know what's happening there? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it was fun to see a couple of, of familiar faces from last year's Paris workshop. It's a one-week travel memoir intensive uh, writing workshop. Um, I'm offering three of them this summer. Two of them are already sold out. So the only one that still has slots is the August 7th through 11th class. Um, rent some class spades right in the middle of Paris. As David and Linda will know, I, I, my wife sent them out on a writing assignment last summer and they were they were doing their writing assignment and then Benifer, ben, Jen, uh, Jen, Jennifer Lopez and Ben Affleck walked out of the Louvre. Actually, yeah, uh, David took a picture of it. And so it's, just, it's right in the middle of Paris. Um, the synergy is really fun. Again, we had age 22 to age 70, just hanging out and partying every night. And then we took some really concrete uh, writing lessons, travel writing lessons. So it's not just a one-week party, even though most people find ways to party. It's actually a concrete way of, uh, of learning travel writing principles, and it's a blast. Um, yeah, so pariswritingworkshops.com or just Google my name and, and Paris Writing, and you'll find out about that. And um, yeah, welcome. Please come join us, because it was it was a total blast to, to get to know David and Linda and, and the other people in those classes last summer. So uh, yeah, please come on out, uh, if not this year, some future year. This has been Deviate with Rolf Potts. More about everything that was just mentioned, including information about the next time I'll talk about The Vagabond's Way at the Nomadic Network's online book club can be found in the show notes at rolfpotts.com deviate. And as always, you can contact me with insights or questions at deviate at rolfpotts.com. This episode was produced by Cedar Van Tassel, who also does the theme music. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in for future episodes of Deviate with Rolf Potts. Deviate with Rolf Potts.